proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at thoughtsfromapage. Today, I am interviewing Lee Tran about her new memoir, House of Sticks. Lee graduated from Columbia University in 2014 with a degree in creative writing and linguistics. She has received fellowships from McDowell, Art Omi, and Yado. House of Sticks is her first book. I loved House of Sticks, and the book club that our literary salon runs called As the Page Turns selected it for our June pick. We meet on Zoom on June 23rd at 11 a.m. Central Time, and the link is in the show notes if you're interested in joining us to discuss this timely and beautiful memoir. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lee. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Lee. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm also doing well, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about House of Sticks. Great. Thank you so much. Well, what I usually do is have authors start out by just giving a quick synopsis of the book. So if somebody hasn't read it yet, they have a general idea what it's about. Sure. So House of Sticks is a memoir about my life as a Vietnamese immigrant living in New York City. I immigrated with my family when I was three years old from a small town in Vietnam to Ridgewood, Queens. And that was made possible through a government program that helped resettle former POWs here in the States. And my father had served nearly a decade in the re-education camps of Vietnam, so we qualified for this government program known as the Humanitarian Operation. And when we arrived, it was really difficult to make ends meet, and we resorted to doing sweatshop labor as a family to put food on the table, and I was only three at the time. As I grew older, my vision began to deteriorate, and I developed myopia, and my father refused to get me glasses, thinking that It was a government conspiracy to take away my eyesight. He suffered from extreme PTSD, and he was always really paranoid, and it really impacted his way of thinking. So for most of my childhood and adolescent years, I couldn't see very well, and I had to work while going to school to help my family. And part of this work was accompanying my mother um, at her nail salon, which we later bought when the sweatshop labor dried up. So overall, you know, this is a story about finding a way to honor my family's traditions and beliefs while at the same time finding the courage to speak up and to find my voice to fight for my destiny. 
Well, I have a lot of questions, all related to everything you just talked about. But before I do that, I would love to just hear how you decided to write your story. That's um, so it's a funny story because I originally decided to split the story up in the steps of a manicure. So the, the first section would be remove old nail polish. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that section would deal with just sort of understanding my past and my family's past and then sort of removing it uh, as we come to America and hoping to assimilate into American society. Um, and then the next step would be cut, file, and buffer nails, which is all about assimilation and, and being like the other Americans that we saw around us. Ultimately, you know, it was a really wonderful structure to help me understand the themes that I wanted to include in my book. But eventually, the, the story grew beyond that structure. And I had to take it apart and, and just start from the beginning and go chronologically instead. So the program moved your family over here, but then they didn't provide any help once you got here? They provided some help, but, you know, so they gave us the money to be able to purchase the plane tickets to come to America, but there was a catch. We actually had to pay the government back for those plane tickets. So I couldn't believe that part. I was like, okay, that's not really that helpful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there was the International Rescue Committee, the IRC. They were very helpful in terms of getting us settled and helping us figure out food stamps and Medicaid and helping us enroll in school. But, you know, we still had to find a way to make ends meet. And for a family that spoke zero English, that was, as you can imagine, really difficult. So, you know, we had this price looming over us. Okay, we have to pay back a certain amount for these plane tickets. We also have to figure out how to pay for rent and, and all of that. So it was really, really difficult for us. As I was reading those early years, I was just appalled. I mean, they didn't help you all with furniture. I mean, you did end up finding a place to live, but even just a place that had heat and there were six of you, I sort of thought, I guess it was a well-meaning thing, but they could have really implemented it a lot better. Right. Yeah. I think the heating situation, I, I think there were points when there was heating, but maybe the, uh, these buildings are really old. They're rent-stabilized buildings. So, so sometimes the heating just didn't work and we didn't have the capacity to speak up and say, hey, we're really cold. There's no heat in our apartment. We just sort of thought, you know, we get to live here in America. So we should just sort of be quiet and not speak up and, and not, you know, sort of cause a ruckus. Well, you were coming from a very different society. And the way you describe where you lived in Vietnam versus coming to the U.S. and living in an apartment, those were drastically different. And I'm sure your parents were just trying to negotiate a language they didn't know and trying to just, like, as you said, figure out how to live and get by. But I just thought they, they would have been so nice if they had handlers or someone who was just checking in on you monthly and saying, oh, okay, well, if your heat's not working, here's what we do. Or, you know, how is this going for you? I, I just felt like that was a huge flaw in that plan that obviously was long ago, but still it's a shame someone didn't think through that better. Right. Yeah. I think for us, we were just so grateful to have escaped. Right. I think coming from the refugee camps and not really having any food and any shelter, just staying these, in these camps for weeks. And, you know, the, the contrast was such that we thought, oh, this is way better. So we right. didn't really right. think to fight against it or, you know, speak out. Or complain. Yes. You didn't want to complain because you're like, well, we're a lot better off than we were. 
I get that. I just sort of thought, gosh, I wish that that had gone a little differently or a lot differently for you all at times. Right, for sure. Well, and then I should probably know the answer to this question, but with respect to the sweatshop work, so you all did that for a long time and then it dried up. Why did it dry up? I think because somebody found out. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it was never explicitly told to us, but the way that my parents explained it to us was, I think this is no longer a legal operation. I, I don't think it was ever a legal operation, but I, I think that's what happened. I just didn't know if it had to do with that or if it had to do with more things being shipped abroad to be done there or if the laws tightened. I just didn't know if you knew. But that also must have contributed to your vision, having to do all of that stuff. I mean, do you think your vision was impacted by working on all those things all the time? I don't know. That's a good question. I never thought of it. But from a very young age, I had to just sort of, you know, stay in my apartment and work on these ties and cummerbunds. And it's, it's possible that it strained my vision and impacted my development physically as well. I would certainly think so. When you were talking later about your brother telling you, you know, to stand up more straight and not be hunched. And I thought, I bet some of that was a confidence issue and just kind of what you grew into. But some of it may have also been just sitting there day after day doing some of the work on the cummerbunds or the scarves, whatever it was you all were working on at the time. Yes, for sure. I was, you know, we were always sitting cross-legged on the floor, hunched over these these ties and cummerbunds and working for hours at a time. Ugh. So it would make sense that when we sort of ventured outside, we still assumed that posture, you know? Absolutely. I just thought I could see where it would have translated into that for you. Well, what about writing about your family? How did you approach your family and how did all that go? I think from the very beginning, I just wanted to tell the truth, the truth as I experienced it. And I just had faith that no matter what I said, because I knew that I had the, the truth involved having to, at some points, almost villainize certain members of my family, but just having faith that the compassion and the forgiveness would eventually shine through and that they would understand why I had to write my story that way. And have they? Yes. You know, one thing I really give my parents credit for is I, I told them from the very beginning, I'm going to have to say this about you and what you did. And they just, they never really protested. They just said, okay, you do what you need to do. And are they still in New York City now? Yes, they actually, uh, they live on the third floor of the same apartment building that we moved into all those years ago. And I live on the second floor. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah. And do they still own the nail salon? They don't, unfortunately. So uh, a few years back, I believe in 2012, the owner of the commercial real estate decided to sell that space to a VIM, which is a department store. And so we unfortunately lost the salon. And I guess it's probably good for them that they didn't own it as COVID started. Yes, for sure. Um, although my mother, even after losing the nail salon, she still took up work in, in other salons uh, across the city. She was working at Harlem at some point after that. And then she started working in Bushwick. But when the pandemic hit, you know, it was really hard for her. She, she so wanted to go back into the salon and, and make that money. And I said, no, you, you can't, you know? Right. It was really for me, I, I'm almost grateful for that because she was getting up there in age, you know, she's, she's 67 this year. And I, I've been trying to convince her to stop working, especially because of the fumes and just all of that contributing to, to her health. But 
I'm, I'm glad ultimately that she stopped working and retired. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? I think ultimately, you know, when I think back to what really inspired me to tell my story is this nagging thought that there would be somebody out there, a little girl especially, who went through what I went through. And, you know, in, in the in all the literature that she's read, she's never seen a story like mine or like hers. And so I, I really, I write for people who have gone through similar things and just to let them know that there is always hope that they must believe in themselves and that my story is is a testament to that faith and, and that belief that if you just put one foot in front of the other and keep, you know, looking for the light within yourself and and, and having faith and somehow it'll all turn out okay. And that there may be missteps along the way or, you know, maybe up and down some, but eventually it will turn out well. Exactly. Exactly. Well, what was the highlight of writing House of Sticks? For me, uh, one of the most challenging aspects about the process of writing House of Sticks was the fact that I was in many ways still living the life that I was writing about. After college, I moved back into the apartment that I grew up in, which I'm, you know, I'm still here today. And my father had just gotten heart surgery. So it was really nice to be close to him and keep an eye on him. But it made it doubly difficult for me to gain the, the distance that I needed to be able to tell my story. So, you know, my complicated relationship with my father is, is very heavily talked about in the book. And during the writing process, not only did my father live upstairs metaphorically, but he did so physically as well. And on top of that, I struggled financially. Part of my ceiling caved in at some point. And I would know. Yeah, I know. It was just a a total mess. And I was dealing with a lot of the trauma that I faced still. And uh, it was ultimately the act of writing itself that allowed me to heal from these emotional scars and connect the dots of my life. And in many ways, I, I wrote myself to a different place in my life. And I came out of it feeling, you know, renewed and re-sculpted. I love that. It probably did help you connect the dots and understand maybe where some of the frustration or some of the un- very unpleasant things that had happened, how that was tied into some of what later happened to you also. Right, exactly. And, you know, it, one of the first chapters I wrote in this memoir was the last chapter um, in a way, I, I knew that that's where I wanted to end up in my life. And I, I wanted to end there in my book as well. And I thought, okay, I have to figure out a way to get from where I am right now and get to that chapter. And and I just did. <laughs> Do you have any frustrating feelings about that first therapist that you dealt with? I think you first encountered him maybe in middle school. I mean, did you feel like he was helpful ultimately or more harmful in sort of the way he handled things? I think, you know, that's that's a hard question to answer, but it's it's complicated. I think I I really looked up to him and I really sort of leaned on him during those moments in my life, especially after the episode with the Administration for Children's Services knocking on our door and charging my parents with with child neglect. I thought, oh gosh, this person is coming into my life and, and helping me understand what is happening to me. And I really looked forward to those sessions, despite not really having the language to speak about my experiences. And so when, you know, I was put away in this uh, psych ward and he had gone on vacation, I just felt so abandoned and I, 
I thought. And betrayed, I bet. Yes, absolutely. But now, you know, after so much time had passed and looking back on it, I think ultimately he had my best interests at heart. And I think he was just very green as a psychiatrist. I was really his, his very first patient out of med school, I believe. And I, I recall he would buy these books on Vietnamese culture and he would show them. He said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn about you and your people and just trying to connect with you. So I think he tried. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I just was so mad. And I was like, where is he and why is he not responding? And so, but of course, you know, that's before cell phones. And I would think the timing would put that before cell phones. So, you know, you go on vacation. It's not the same as today where you can be reached at any hour at any day. But still, I just thought you there could have been a much better way to handle that, like let you know what's happening or at least let the facility know what's happening. You know, so you weren't panicking, like what in the world is going on here? Actually, you know, it, it, it wasn't a time of cell phones. <laughs> oh, it was? Oh, that's even worse then. So he was just ignoring his phone calls. Okay, well, then I shouldn't even give him that benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah. I'm really mad now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Part of it is it's hard to... I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And, and sometimes we don't know what's going on in a person's mind. But I do think, you know, if anyone were to be upset, it would be warranted in this case, you know. For sure. But I was just kind of curious how you looked back on that. Well, I always love to talk about titles and covers because I think it's very interesting to hear how they come about. Sometimes I think you learn something from talking about them. Tell me about first the title and then the cover. Okay. So the title, it's actually, oh gosh, it has so many meanings. But for me, you know, not least of all, the fact that we came from a house made of sticks. Right. With all the hopes of attaining the American dream. But we ended up becoming the sticks ourselves. You know, we were emaciated and impoverished. And so that, I just sort of wanted to play on that a little bit. And, you know, there's Throughout the memoir, there's a recurring theme of almost making it, you know, but never quite getting there. And to me, that was very reminiscent of the second house in The Three Little Pigs, whose owner thought that he would fare better than the first pig, whose house was made of straw, but in the end, his house was also blown down. So it was just sort of, you know, we always hear about the first house and the third house, but we don't hear about the journey to that third house and, and how hard it is. And sometimes people don't make it. You know, sometimes people, no matter how hard they work, they just can't rise above their circumstances. And so that's, yeah, I wanted to speak to that as well. And gosh, there are just so many. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give you two more. But. No, I love that. I had thought of the first one. I knew your house in Vietnam it had been a house of sticks. Mm -hmm. And I actually did think about the middle house, but I didn't think about it nearly as coherently or intellectually as you did. So I love what you said. But I didn't think about how emaciated you all were in the sticks. And so that's fascinating. And now I want to hear about the last two. Um, well, I also thought of the, the sticks of incense that burned daily on our altar, again, in the hopes that we would make it and, and that our dreams would be granted. And so those sticks of incense, you know, this theme of Buddhism and, and how much it was a part of our daily lives and, and a part of the faith that we kept to keep going. And, and finally, there's the very simple metaphor of the nail industry, uh, which utilizes sticks as tools of the trade. You know, we have like the sticks to push back the cuticles. Well, you know, that's so funny because I always, I, I frequently ask this question. I mean, every once in a while, the title's so obvious that there's no point, you know, in asking about it, but, but I do. But I think this is by far the most interesting title conversation. And 
meaningful title. I mean, I just think that's amazing. All I mean, I thought of a couple of those, but there's many more. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. I love that. Well, what about the cover? I just think it's stunning. I love it. Initially, there was there was a more literal interpretation of the title. So it was the first cover, you know, had like a house made of, out of sticks. And so I, you know, I, because the title refers to so many things, I didn't want to be limited to just the literal interpretation of it. The artists came up with this beautiful, gorgeous cover that I think captures the, the points, the many points of light that helped me along my journey. I also think if you had done the House of Sticks, literally, it wouldn't really have represented your story because you spend a little bit of time on that, but you left Vietnam and you're in the U.S., so it wouldn't really match up with your story, I don't think. Right, yeah. And and so, yeah, I, I pushed really hard to, <laughs> you know, not, not get such a literal interpretation. Well, I'm glad you did because I think it turned out perfectly. Thank you. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? I am. So I'm trying my hand at historical fiction. So I'm working on a novel that is based on the story of the Trung sisters. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Trung sisters. I don't think so. Yeah. So, you know, this is back in 40 AD. It's after millennia of Chinese domination over Vietnam. And these two sisters are known as the Trung sisters. They joined the army, the Vietnamese army, and together they rose up in the ranks to become generals. And they led the first successful revolt against China, and they took back Vietnam's independence. So they became the first queens of Vietnam. Oh, that is a great story. And it's definitely not one I'm familiar with. Yes, you're going way back in the historical fiction genre. (laughs) You know, I, I think, you know, when people think of Vietnam, I remember when I was younger, and people asked where I was from, and I would say Vietnam, they would say, oh, you mean like the Vietnam War? And so, you know, it's so much of the American perception of Vietnam is linked to this Vietnam-American war. Um, And I would just, I want to sort of shift that perspective a little bit, uh, shift that gaze back to a different war. And and it's such an incredible story, and it's so feminist and and topical even, that I, I I would love to really spend some time working on that narrative. Oh, good. Well, I can't wait to read that when it makes its way out into the world. Thank you. And, you know, speaking about Vietnam and what Amer- how Americans perceive Vietnam, I felt like I learned so much from Quay Mai's book, The Mountain Sing. It talks about Vietnam from a Vietnamese perspective, and I hadn't really thought about it till I read her book and spoke with her some that so much of what we know about Vietnam as Americans is from an American perspective. So it's really great to have Vietnamese people telling their stories. Yes. And I, I just love the mountain sing so much. I just love Wing Fan Wei Mai. She's, she's an incredible writer and an incredible person, so compassionate. And that compassion really rings through uh, in her novel. So, well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Um, well, aside from the mountain sing, which I read just in December of last year, I'm currently reading Things We Lost to the Water by Eric Wing. And I don't know, have you have you read that at all? I haven't. That's the one that's set in New Orleans, right? Yes. Okay. Um, I have not, but I've been seeing it everywhere because it just came out. Yes. And so I'm, I'm right in the, in the middle of that. And it's such a gorgeously written tale of immigration and loss and, and family. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a memoir about my own immigration experience. So I was so curious to see what a fictionalized tale would look like of that. And 
I find that there's just so much that resonates with me in that in this novel. So I highly recommend it, even though I'm not even done yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I realized it was a novel. I thought it was a memoir also. Yeah, I know. So oh. it's definitely a novel. Um, and I also, I was gifted this beautiful copy of Red Rock Baby Candy by Shira Spector, um, Canadian author, and it's a graphic memoir. And it's just so beautiful and Whitman-esque and every page, it's just like an explosion of color and life. And it, it's really just such a gorgeous graphic memoir that I, I highly recommend to everyone. I haven't even seen that one. I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. And she's also just a lovely person. I connected with her shortly after reading her memoir and we hit it off. So, <laughs> Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's so great about the author community is how giving and kind and building up everybody is. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, Lee, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here today and, 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 to have, and to have been featured on this podcast. I really appreciate this conversation and you for, for hosting me. Oh, absolutely. Well, I loved House of Sticks and I can't wait for everybody else to get to read it. Thank you. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Lee's book can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.